You know, as a white male, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be black in the 1950s in the American South. I could read about it. I have friends of color. I can hear stories and empathize and that kind of thing, but I still don't know the experience. I'm interested because today's guest, you know, this was his family's lineage, right? And they had all sorts of experiences that they then taught to their children and the lessons learned and the wisdom that was found there in experience. And the interesting thing, even though some of that stuff was so unjust, so unfair, so unthinkable in some situations, somehow my guest family came out of it with an optimistic look in life, seeing the opportunity and the beauty of allowing things to unfold as they will. I told my guest today, Carlin Howard, that it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that. So teach me, tell me about how to see the beauty and that kind of thing. And we get into that and into so much more in today's episode, which you're going to love. Hey, it's Danny, Chief Ruckus Maker over at Better Leaders, Better Schools. I'm a principal development and retention expert, two-time best-selling author and host of two of the world's most downloaded podcasts. And this show is for you, a ruckus maker which means you commit to your continuous growth, to challenging the status quo, and designing the future of school right now. We'll be back after a few messages from our show sponsors. The truth is, most leaders weren't taught a robust way to set their goals. Everyone knows how to choose a goal, write the to-do list, and pick a due date. And as a result, they're not optimizing their potential. When you download the Ruckus Maker 8-step goal-setting tool, I'll send you the tool in a short 8-minute coaching video that shows you how to work smarter, not harder, and to create more value for your campus. Are you ready to accomplish more with less effort and in less time? Download the Ruckus Maker 8-step goal-setting tool by going to betterleadersbetterschools.com slash goals. How would you like to increase student talk by an average of 40%? More student ownership, more student discourse. Check it out for yourself by trying out TeachFX. Go to teachfx.com forward slash better leaders to pilot their program today. If executive functioning skills are integral to student success, then why aren't they taught explicitly and consistently in classrooms? I have no idea. I have no idea why that doesn't happen. But what I do know is that our friends over at Organized Binder have created a new course that will teach your teachers how to set up students for success via executive functioning skills. Learn more at organizedbinder.com slash go. Well, hey there, Ruckus Makers. Today, we are joined by Carlin Howard, who is the Chief Impact Officer and co-founder of Equity Institute. In his role, he oversees organizational strategy, internal operations, and implementation of Equity Institute's Educator Pathway Program. Carlin's an avid reader and lifelong learner who spends much of his time exploring topics related to social science, history, and leadership. Carlin, welcome to this show. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure. I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, 
I remember from our uh, pre-interview, you talked about growing up in Georgia. Fun fact, that's where my first teaching position was. Um, Marietta, right? Cobb County, where they yeah, make, yeah. Uh, I guess, Cabbage Patch Kids and all that kind of stuff. But you heard stories from elders, right? They have so much wisdom to share. And, and they were talking about living in the American South in the 50s and in the 60s. How did these stories shape you? Yeah, I, I think my upbringing, as any other, anyone's upbringing, had a pretty significant impact on how I viewed the world, particularly the stories that you just alluded to, really made it present and aware to me some of the, the challenges and also opportunities that many folks face during an era where, you know, I'm particularly talking about many of my parents, grandparents, et cetera, face significant terrorization, right? Because of the color of their skin and not necessarily because of their intellect or, or any abilities or knowledge that they possess. So I often heard stories about how folks were ill-treated, how they were seen as being inferior and less. Um, and because of those stories and because of that perspective, I grew up with this deep appreciation for who I was and also just a deep understanding of the pain and hurt that we as a collective society have endured over the years. And But through that, there's been a lot of beauty that has emerged. Because if there's anything I've gained from these stories that I've inherited and passed, been passed down to me, it's this idea that there's always an opportunity to rise up, to rise above, to go above. So I always grew up with this perspective that I couldn't be imprisoned by people's beliefs or perspectives on who I was. I, I have a unique opportunity to really surrender, if you will, to the unfolding of life and allow who I am as a human being, as a contributor to my community, to, to allow that really emerge and shine brightly because that's where the beauty is. And, you know, that's, you know, of all those stories, everything always ended with seeing the beauty in the power and what we could be as humans, as individuals, as people, as a collective. Can, you, can we dig into more of this idea of beauty and surrendering to what's unfolding, you know, I can't, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around, right? If I'm honest with you. And and, and, uh, when you see the injustice and the inequities that exist, let alone if that's happening to you and your family and those you love, to stay positive uh, is inspiring. It's hard for me to unpack. Can you talk more to that? You know, and I, I can speak largely from my own experience, but, you know, when we talk about leadership, when we talk about learning, right, the topic often revolves around these kind of externalized factors or theories or perspectives, right? And more than anything, what I witnessed and what I saw growing up was this belief or this inclination to see what we saw as leadership, what we saw as learning. What we saw as being, as being something that was, that transcended things that could be just explained through nice frameworks or great written prose, whatever it may be, but had to be in a felt experience in some ways of accessing these deeper levels of consciousness. And for many folks that I grew up around, they were deeply spiritual folks who were highly involved in 
religious institutions, in particular Black churches of the South. And through those experiences, they developed a certain level of just spiritual fortitude, if you will, that allowed them to persevere and be resilient through some of the most challenging circumstances, right? When you think about it, there's no reason for many of my ancestors to have survived and for many of them even thrive, given the conditions that they were born into by no fault of their own. Yet they found ways and in inventive ways, they found ways that were deeply based on who they were being and who they were becoming that were rooted in oral tradition, right? Storytelling, essentially. It was rooted in engaging in a shared experience. It was rooted in uh, traditions around how do we bring the collective together to heal, to grow, to simply just be in each other's spirit. And I think in that, in, in some ways, that is hard for us as folks who are constantly busy to see, but in many ways, right, being in that collective space was the grounds for healing. It was the grounds for, for, uh, the emergence of beauty in such dire circumstances, right? And that's, that's something I carry with me is this ideal around collective support, community, our connection to each other, right? There's a, there's a, a South African proverb is, is, I am because you are, right? This idea of Ubuntu. And that's, that's the, the, the spirit of what I saw growing up and witnessed and heard and felt. Yeah, I am because you are. And there's this connection. There's this interconnectedness too, right? Like it or not, right? And, and, uh, how do you think that idea of Ubuntu relates to education? Yeah, you know, Oftentimes, or at least historically, right, in a lot of ways, we viewed education as serving more economic needs or, or demands, if you will, right? We need a educated populace in order to fulfill certain job roles or, or, or titles, whatever it may be. But with this ideal of Ubuntu, what it really speaks to is there's something much deeper about the experience of learning that, that goes beyond simply trying to fulfill a job or get prepared to step into some sort of job. And it's about this idea around whole, whole person education, about us being able to learn in community with others, right? There's something very powerful and meaningful about the fact that one of the most effective ways that we gain knowledge and information is through dialogue, right? Through discussion, right? In community with others, right? Like even when you think about reading, right? In a way, you're having this internal dialogue and you're also having a dialogue with the person who wrote this book and the words that they've written or the characters that they've created, right? And when you think about that, what, 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 why do we gravitate towards these experiences where we can be engaged with other people as a learning experience, right? There's something about us being able to see ourselves through other people. There's something about people being able to reflect who we are. There's also just something about us being able to be in a space with people and experience this shared experience that we call human, right? And and that's a very powerful thing. It's an uplifting thing. We often take it for granted because we just see it in the same way we probably see the air or water. It's just, it's just here. But it's actually a very miraculous thing that we can engage in. Even you and I, you know, miles apart, but through technology are able to actually engage with each other and and hopefully present something that, not just benefits us and contributes to our own growth and development, but to that of others as well. And, and that's what the power of Ubuntu really shows up in education is that you're able to, 
you're able to engage in this community of learning with other people. We're able to see your humanness and see their humanness as well, which sins allow you to elevate your knowledge, your skills, your ability, and just generally your way of being as well. Well, we're cer- certainly contributing to uh, Ubuntu and the, the furthering of knowledge and education and leadership. You know, there's tens of thousands of people that'll listen to this episode. We have community cohort type stuff at Better Leaders, Better Schools. I'm sure the Equity Institute, you know, really uh, focuses on community aspects of, of uh, supporting folks as well. So yeah, that is, that's happening. I could feel it. I could feel the people with us, even though, you know, we, ha- we haven't released the episode just yet. Let's, let's go back. So we were talking about your history growing up in Georgia and, you know, we actually share this. You don't know this, but, uh, I wanted to be a lawyer growing up. I actually first wanted to be this really weird connection of, FBI agent and cartoonist, right? So that was, that was a kid that you, you would do the FBI and uh, be a cartoonist. But as a, as a college student, I thought I was going to go into law. It's a longer story about why I didn't, but you also wanted to be a lawyer growing up. And here we both are, but you also ended up in education. How did you make that shift? You know, towards the end of my college career, I had what I can only call a quarter life crisis, right? Where okay, you had everything figured out, but you didn't have nearly as much figured out as you thought you had, right? So during my senior year, I was trying to figure out, all right, what is actually next? I had worked and just previously the summer before my senior year, I worked for a public defender and it was one of the full transparency. It was a very depressing job. Each attorney that I worked with had a caseload of about 500 cases, right? Which is just wild. Can you imagine seeing 500 people in a year over these very elaborate, oftentimes court cases that have to be seen and shown or worked through, rather, should I say? How's that? I saw people who were just under high amounts of pressure, stress. And on top of that, you know, folks didn't get a whole lot of sunlight because they were off either the courtrooms or in the office. And that just, that just wasn't appealing to me. So the friend of mine who suggested I'll look into doing a service year. So I ultimately decided to give it a try because I was like, I need a gap year to figure out my life and what I want to do. And through that service year, I actually ended up serving in a middle school as a after school provider, in school coach, tutor, mentor, before school program provider. Right. And I loved it. I loved engaging with kids and it was something that made me come alive and by the, by the time I got deep into it, I was like, I right, law, law school is not in the horizon for me. Working with young people, working in this particular space, right? Caring for others, showing passion, love, and kindness in, in service to helping people maximize their potential. That is really spoke to something greater within me. And I've just followed that, 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 you know, urge or that feeling of there's something deeper there. And, and that's brought me to where I'm at today. Love it. Yeah. So much there. And, you know, I love to say that, uh, schools should be the, the most magical places on earth, not Disney, because we're dealing with the raw ingredients that makes Disney work, which is the kids. And, uh, to see that, that connection, you know, light a fire for you too. I totally get it. So let's talk about students and then sometimes the difficult ones. And, uh, you have a story of a student who ripped up some paper and refused to log into his laptop. What was going on there? Yeah. So, you know, my first year of teaching as a classroom lead, classroom teacher, you know, one of the things that was always fascinating to me was 
just how our perspectives of the world be so easily different, right? You know, when I first started teaching, I came into a classroom full of bright-eyed fifth graders. And I told the young people my story of growing up and where I was from and all this good stuff. There was one student really gravitated towards me. And afterwards, he, he remarked that, you know, we have a lot in common. You know, I have families moved in Georgia. I like the University of Georgia. That's where I went to college. I like all the sports teams that you like. I like especially dogs, football, probably <laughs> pretty much everything. He was yeah, like, yeah. "Oh my gosh, you're like me, right?" And uh-huh. you know, in the beginning, we had this wonderful experience. It was um, it's like you know, I don't know if you heard the song, "Just the Two of Us," but it's like just the two of us playing in the background while while we're just walking down the hallway, we're talking about life, we're talking about school, right? I, I'm attending this football games, ba- uh, basketball games, all these sporting events, right? Uh, calling his parents on a regular basis to give them updates, right? It's just the perfect scenario. And then something started to shift, right? Uh, let's go deeper into the year. And one particular event that happened was, I was a math teacher and I was handing out laptops to the kids. And as I was handing out laptops, I was also passing out password. So the kids would open their laptops and they'd take a look at the password, enter it into the laptop. So when he received his password, he ripped it up, closed the laptop, threw the paper on the ground and started to, to just put his head down. And so I walked over and I said, hey, what's up, man? And I picked up the paper, I opened his laptop and I said, hey, at least I can help him get logged on and see, see if we can at least make headway there. So I pieced the password back together. And as I pieced it together, what I noticed was that on the piece of paper was written the word bad, B-A-D, and the numbers one, two, three. What I realized is that he saw it as a sign from the universe that he was a bad kid, right? Because even though we had this great relationship, his entire elementary school experience was getting in trouble as he saw it. He always thought of himself as the bad kid, right? And because he thought of himself as the bad kid, he ended up just leaning into that that belief. Even though I had seen with my own eyes that that's not, that wasn't true. That wasn't who he was. Yet that's what he embodied and believed and thought this was the message that affirmed that. And, you know, what I realized in that particular moment was that Rather than what many educators and, and teachers before me had done, you know, out of no fault of their own, they just likely did not know what to do, to be quite honest. I chose to extend love and kindness and grace and compassion to him. And what that me was, you know, when he would come into the school in the morning, right, I'll greet him with a smile. I ask him about his day. I walk with him and talk with him, right? If I found out he was angry or upset, I wasn't one to come in and reprimand him. I'll just try to create space for him to actually share what was on his mind. Now, a lot of these things, admittedly, I had to do with a little bit of extra effort, right? Like I had to build and this relationship beyond the typical classroom hours, right? And and it paid off, you know, and by the end of the year, we had just a fantastic relationship, you know? Every time where teachers would call me to the classrooms to talk to him because they were like, oh, we can't get trouble. We can't do this. We can't do that with him. He's difficult. But I always found that 
he was just another kid, another young person who was just trying to figure it all out. Um, but by the end of the year, we um, were sitting down and he had actually was going to be leaving our school earlier because his parents were moving to another state and he was transferring out. But he sat down and he said, Mr. Howard, I wish you were my dad. That, that was heavy. You know what I mean? That was that really made all of this real for me. Right. It, 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 it opened my eyes to the fact that, right. I, as a math teacher, right. Now, I could teach, you know, equations or, you know, I can teach number sentences and how to count by tens and all these things, you know, our fifth graders were working on at the time. But there's something very powerful about someone being able to really lay their heart there in front of you as a, especially as a fifth grader, because you know, they really mean it. Right. You know that what they're expressing really comes from somewhere deep. And, um, yeah, that's been, that's been something, a story that I've kept with me very dearly to this day as a reminder that, right, this, this, this thing that we call education is much bigger than just trying to perfect the craft of teaching content. It is also about cultivating people into the best that they can be. It's about helping them maximize their potential. And that's really, where the beauty and the magic exists. 100%. Yeah, I deeply resonate with that story. And, and as you say, you know, education is so much more, right? I think it is a calling. And uh, the content's important. And we can, we'll do it. We'll get there. But if you, you know, really see and hear the human beings that you have the privilege to, to serve, you know, fifth grade, senior, whatever level it is, and, uh, pour into that relationship, right? And it does take time and it is outside those classroom hours. The content stuff that you want them to get, it's easier. They're they're open to it, you know? Um, and that, that story just really illustrates that. Reminds me of a guy, Michael, sixth grade for me, right? I was a sixth grade teacher, taught high school too, but Michael legit was, I think, instilled fear in adults. I think there were adults that were scared of this kid, right? let alone his peers. And, um, you know, I worked hard on a relationship with him and uh, I could, I could always calm him down, you know, and he'd always listen. It's because we put in, we put in that time. We spent a lot of, lot of hours, basketball, practice at the library, doing homework, driving him to school, you know, picking him up on the way type of thing. But that's sometimes what it takes. So awesome. I'm enjoying these stories, uh, Carlin, and uh, we're going to take a quick break for some messages from our sponsors. When we get back, I want to ask you about an idea called fractal thinking that I don't know anything about. So you're going to teach me. Good stuff. In post-pandemic classrooms, student talk is crucial. And when classrooms come alive with conversation, teachers and students both thrive. TeachFX helps teachers make it happen. The TeachFX instructional coaching app provides insights into student talk, effective questions, and classroom conversation quality. TeachFX Professional Development complements the app and empowers teachers with best practices for generating meaningful student discourse. Teachers using TeachFX increase their student talk by an average of 40%. Imagine that, 40% more ownership over the class by students. Ruckus makers can pilot TeachFX with their teachers. Visit teachfx.com slash better leaders to learn how. That's teachfx.com forward slash better 
leaders. I have never met an educator or a parent who does not want their child to develop executive functioning skills. They may not know the language around what these skills are, but they know they want their students to succeed. Having these skills is largely left up to chance. What's going on there? Research shows that executive functioning needs to be taught explicitly. All students need daily practice with organizational skills, time and task management, self-regulation, and goal setting. Lucky for you, our friends at Organized Binder have released a new self-paced course that will teach you how to teach these executive functioning skills and set your students up for success. Learn more at organizedbinder.com slash go. Teach your students executive functioning skills and set them up for success at organizedbinder.com slash go. All right, we're back with Carlin Howe, the Chief Impact Officer and co-founder of Equity Institute. And as I mentioned before the break, uh, we wa- I want to learn about this idea called fractal thinking. What, what is it? Why do I need to know it? <laughs> Why is it important? Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah, so just to start off, I, I do want to give flowers to the folks who come before me that you know, come up with these or at least have presented these perspectives that I've learned from, in particular, Asia Marie Brown, the author and activist, someone who is very, has been very influential in different movements and different spaces that are focused on centering the human experience. She wrote a book called Emergent Strategy a few years back um, that outlines principles of what she calls emergent strategy. Emergent strategy being essentially seeing how complexity arises out of relatively small interactions, right? That is essentially what we see as being emergent strategy. But one of the things that she's inspired by is fractal thinking, right? So from a mathematical standpoint, you may have seen this when you have like the large triangle with all the little small triangles in the middle, right? That make up the large triangle. Well, that large triangle requires these individual smaller triangles to get to scale, essentially. And this is the way we as an organization at Equity Institute tend to operate. It's the way I tend to operate my life is when you think about impact, right? Everybody's like, oh, how do we change the world? How do we change that? How do we change this? It's not about trying to figure out today, you know, what can we do tomorrow that's going to change 10 million people's lives and their mindsets, behaviors, whatever. Right. It's really about can you focus on the people right in front of you and have a significant, meaningful impact in their lives? Right. If everybody did that, that would add up over time and become these what feels like these smaller parts, but these smaller parts would would add up to this larger whole. Right. So when you talk about change, like the power in change isn't trying to figure out the perfect way to reach the most number of people. It's really about how do you how do you have these small interactions that can then add up over time that then equate to this large scale change? Right? When we think about, you know, another thing that we've looked at as a guy named David Santola, as I believe his name is a professor who writes a lot about change. But one of the things that, you know, when you think about, it, I think the book he wrote is called The Tipping, The Tipping Point. There we go. There may be Daniel Santola. Santola is the last name. I do remember that. But anyway, it's, um, he wrote this book called The Tipping Point, and he talks about this idea as well as like, right? Like when we think about things being viral or we think about things spreading quickly, it's not that, you know, all of a sudden overnight, everybody saw the same thing at the same time. It's more about these small scale interactions 
that then scaled up over time because these interactions, you know, all these interactions were happening at one time and they were adding up to this bigger thing, right? And that's really what fractal thinking is all about. You know, you may have heard the story, the starfish story, right? Where starfish washes onto a beach and there's a bunch of them who look around washing onto the beach and kid is walking down the beach and picks up a starfish and throws it back in. And their friend is like, there's no way you're going to be able to clean up all these starfish and every kid responds, right? I just helped that one, right? Now, if everybody has that mindset, just like helping the one that's right in front of you, right? Imagine the the level of change that could happen as opposed to our, our typical models of change, which are very, t- tend to be very top down, right? Like this one singular leader gives a vision of change and then tries to get everybody to rally around it and tries to get everybody to do it as opposed to what fractal they can really demonstrates is a a nation to look at it more as bottom up, right? And these individual actions being able to magnify over time to large scale change. And that's that's really what it's about. Got it. So uh, if you want to dig more into it, that that they could find it in that emergent strategy book by Adrian Marie Brown. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yep. So she has a a, a section dedicated in her book that's talking about fact. I like that. And then you know it's to me it's like small ideas that lead to big impact. But uh you know, reflecting back to you and correct me anywhere I'm wrong, but you know, often uh, a, a leader might inappropriately think like, I got to do this all myself. Whereas if I empower the team and make it our cause, everybody just picks up the one starfish or picks up the one piece of trash and we can, we can knock it all out together and have a much bigger impact. Does that sound fair? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's always the toughest thing I find when talking to people about leadership, right? Is, Why is that? Talk, well, because I think a lot of times people are either, whether they are just like naturally inclined to be in kind of in the leadership position because of their personality or whatever knowledge, skills, abilities they have, or if it's just somebody who, who kind of just worked their way up and now they're in a leadership position. Most, a lot of times folks who are in those positions see themselves as being like, I need to like set the vision and get people on board. And then I need to also do everything because I don't know, or I don't feel like everybody can do all these things as good as I can. So therefore I need to try to get them all done. Right. Until they end up burning out. You end up just overwhelmed. They're like, I can't manage everything I got going on. I might have a team here, but I'm the bottleneck to my team getting information or getting whatever resources they need in order to be great in, and do well in, in the work that they need to do, right? Um, I'm guilty of it, right? Like, I've, and it's been a lesson I've learned over time. Like, there's no way you can, you know, and I've, I've actually heard this before. It's like, if, if if your dream doesn't require a team that is not big enough, right? and that's, that's, that's kind of the perspective I operate from. It's like, if, if we want to imagine better ways of being in relationship with each other, ways that are really human-centered or life-affirming, right? Like, it's not going to require some, you know, hierarchical structure and some top leader coming down and presenting this beautiful vision for us. It's going to require people on the ground actually taking it upon themselves to say, this is the type of world we want to live and exist in. And that's that's how we get to a point where where there's 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 space for for a lot more love expanding and care expanding and people able to work across lines of difference in 
the same time recognizing their uniqueness and individuality while contributing, though, to this larger community. Yeah, which is exactly what we need, right, right now. So, Carlin, what, what's an impacted leadership? Yeah, so when we talk about impacted leadership, it is essentially leadership from folks who have been directly impacted by whatever ills or challenges that are present, right? This is another word that I also borrowed from Adrian Marie Brown as well. But when we think about impacted leadership in the work that we're doing, rather than saying, hey, somebody from the outside, I got the solution, let me implement the solution. It is, hey, how do we put people who are from the communities that we serve in positions of power and support them in actually being able to enact and get in right relationship with change so that they can make the world, their communities themselves better, right? That is that's what we mean by impacted leadership, right? So to me, when it comes to, you know, talking about racial injustice, for instance, right, we really should think about how do we put folks who are most negatively impacted, directly impacted by racial injustice in positions of power so that they may be able to enact the change that we all need, right? Or you're thinking about, right now, I feel like climate has been a big concern for a lot of folks, right? Um, rather me, who's all the way over here, say, all right, here's all the things we need to do in order to, to address this big climate problem, right? How about we also go to the folks who are, who are actually directly impacted by some of the most devastating circumstances because of the climate and allow them to have the opportunity to lead, right? The other piece of that impacted leadership that folks often forget is that, you know, we'll put impacted leaders into positions of power, but then there's little support to back them. Right? You got to remember that most of the time, folks who are, in, who are impacted leaders who come into a position of power, they may not have had the same opportunities, resources as other folks who are, quote unquote, maybe more traditional leaders um, because of their educational background and all these other things, right? So because of that, it requires having impact on leaders requires a higher level of intentionality, requires greater support. I mean, it requires um, what we'll call privilege support, right? So people who have the resources, the knowledge, the skills, the abilities, et cetera, those are the folks who need to support those impacted leaders so that we can get the good work done. But, you know, the challenge is always, oftentimes we as humans, for no, you know, no, no fault of our own, but we often operate from an egocentric place, right? Where, where we believe like, no, I deserve to be the one leading this. or I deserve to get the credit for this. It often leads to, this is just a bunch of infighting and arguments and things just not getting done as opposed to just saying, hey, how do we, how do we make sure that folks who are most impacted by these things are the folks who get to really lead on reversing or changing them? Got it. Yeah. So supporting those on the front lines, right? And, and instead of doing things to them, doing things with them, right? And putting them in the lead, empowering, you know, and, and coming up with uh, creative solutions and kind of honestly better solutions because they understand the problems way more than somebody who's not experiencing those challenges are going to understand them. So, well, if you could put, Carlin, a message on all school marquees around the world for just one day, what would your message be? The big thing that I've gained or a message I've gained, and I actually picked this up when I was, I'm also a professional leadership performance coach. So during my formal training, one of the mindsets that we talked about often was seeing people as creative, resourceful, and whole. 
And that's the message that I would want folks to really see, that you are creative, resourceful, and whole. You hope that message opens up windows of opportunity for people to explore more of what that means for them. Yeah, brilliant. And if you could build your dream school, right? You you didn't have any constraints in terms of resources. Your only limitation was your ability to imagine. What would be the three guiding principles in building this dream school? Yeah, yeah. So I'm actually on borrow from Equinicity. We have what I what I authored and called a evolving definition of educational equity. But there's five principles. One will pull three from this particular framework, which First one being that diversity is not an afterthought, but a critical asset in our society. And it's essential for our societal wellness, right? We know that diversity drives creativity, innovation, problem solving, right? It offers unique ways of seeing the world. And it's just a, it's a natural part of our world if you look at different biosystems, ecosystems, right? So that's, that's one, diversity is a critical asset. Seeing our educational system as the complex web of interconnected elements, but at its core, showing that it is comprised of relatively simple interactions, right? So when you think about that, it goes back to that fractal thinking. So viewing the school and seeing it as our ability to sustain and build authentic relationships, that is where the success of the school lies, right? Because authentic connections between educators, students, parents, community members, et cetera, that's the catalyst for growth. And then the, the last one is just a recognition, rather. So a recognition that systemic oppression and marginalization have a real material impact on individuals and communities, right? So operating from that vantage point, right, oftentimes that we want to see a theory people are all at the same starting point and they just work hard enough, then life will be better for them. Well, Reality is that that's not always the case, right? Yeah, hard work can get you so far, but there are things that are baked into our systemic structures that impact the way people live and operate. And we have to just keep that at the forefront of our brains as we move about the work that we do. Because if we don't, then we'll fail to see how someone's lived experiences may have resulted in them being in whatever position in life that they're in. Those are the the three diversity being a critical asset, right? Seeing our our system as made up of relatively simple interactions. And then the last one, seeing that systemic oppression, marginalization of real tangible impact on people's lives. Right. Hey, Ruckus Maker, if you're aligned and enjoying, you know, what Carlin is Discussing with me today, check out his work at the equityinstitute.org and uh, board.com. Both of those will be uh, in the show notes for you. Carlin, last question. I've really enjoyed our conversation, but we covered a lot of ground. And for everything we discussed, what's the one thing you want a ruckus maker to remember? Yeah, yeah. And this, 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 the big thing is staying committed to maximizing your potential. That's like if you, Whatever that journey looks like for you, that's your journey. But just stay committed to maximizing your potential because there's always deeper places to go with who we are. Thanks for listening to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, Ruckus Maker. How would you like to lead with confidence, swap exhaustion for energy, turn your critics into cheerleaders, and so much more? The Ruckus Maker Mastermind is a world-class leadership program designed for growth-minded school leaders just like you. 
Go to betterleadersbetterschools.com slash mastermind. Learn more about our program and fill out the application. We'll be in touch within 48 hours to talk how we can help you be even more effective. And by the way, we have cohorts that are diverse and mixed up. We also have cohorts just for women in leadership and a BIPOC-only cohort as well. When you're ready to level up, go to betterleadersbetterschools.com slash mastermind and fill out the application. Thanks again for listening to the show. Bye for now and go make a ruckus. Oh, 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 o